This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number seven, recorded on September 1st, 2014. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Tallison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. We post the show with world-class show notes, really good show notes, by the way. You should definitely check them out, out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can contact the show to send me an email, jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. Track me down on Twitter, at Jay Collison, and now call in those questions. And this would be a great program for you to call those questions in on for these two guys, 402-478-8450. Just leave your message. You don't even have to type anything. Just call it in, leave your message. We'll play it right here, and we'll answer it on the program. Tonight, joining me uh, from the confines of his new digs in uh, in Maryland and at the University of Maryland, Christian, good to see you. How are you? Yeah, it's great being back in the University of Maryland, and the digs are everything that has been hyped to us for the past year by our uh, leadership, so... It's uh, great to be here. Great to rub into everyone's face that we have the internet. Um, great to have air-controlled rooms and drywall instead of cinder block and uh, running fans with humidity. Uh, so all in all, no complaints on this end. Yeah, very good. Well, you need to experience that your freshman year to really appreciate it, right? So when you get well, in the nice digs. Now, now we have 66 new freshmen who have never experienced this, so we have to find True. other ways to make them understand our pain. Yeah, for sure. Well, on his on his left in my screen, but maybe on his right there, because I think you're right next door, Ashton Webster. Yes. Ashton, how are you? I'm good. I'm also in uh, Prince Frederick now, the new dorm, and it's phenomenal. So it's good to be here. Uh, it's good to be on the show. Good. Welcome back. Good to see you back for number two on on your side. And I know I think Christian said he can knock on the wall. Are you literally just on? Yeah, the I don't. Side? We can try. I, you might even be able to hear it, but he's literally <laughs> like right in front of me, just on the other side of the wall. All right. Yeah. yeah. So that close. So well, that's good. It's good to keep the two of you close. Uh, together, good to have the two of you in school because I know uh, already they are starting to get you working hard. But uh, we got some things we want to cover today, Christian. I will just throw it right over to you. Yeah, so we really just get into the conversation about uh, intrusion detection, and I think that it, it's a big topic uh, at the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Um, but obviously, I think a lot of people go around in circles with it um, in in industry and so forth. So we just thought we'd have an open conversation today about you know, what our opinions and takes are. Well, first talk about, you know, what is intrusion detection and uh, really talk about what some of the things going on in the public sector and, and enterprise are for that and then maybe get into some more minute details and tie it back to uh, what we're doing in academia. So, um, primarily though, What's what's interesting about this whole topic is just how much uh, resources we continue to spend into it, and yet how little we've defined what the parameters are, um, and that's really been an issue that I think a lot of people have acknowledged, but not a lot of people will talk about because a lot of people are making money off selling intrusion detection systems uh, to customers. I mean, that's been a big part of the kind of defensive nature of what these products and services do. Um, but how the technology is changing over time, I think, is important. So, Ashton, do you have any uh, comments you want to start off with on you know what IPS versus IDS is itself? Yeah, I do. I just want to go back to one thing you said really quickly about how many resources we're investing in this. And I think for me, when I heard that term in the past, I used to think sort of exclusively about the uh, economic resources, so like you know, millions of dollars, uh, billions in the entire industry. And it's not just that, though. It's also the time and the information. Um, I mean, if it's your personal information that's out there, and is taken, then that might not even be something you can quantify in terms of dollars for you. So sure. I think just to put that in, into perspective, um, it's it's so much more than just like you know hundred billion dollars on on uh, the infrastructure for security or whatever it may be. It's about the time, and it really comes down and back to the people and the information that they're trying to store. Sure. So for, for everybody who's wondering, just for the average guy who's wondering, IDPS, Christian, stands for? Intrusion Detection Prevention System. Yeah, and so for, and for the most part, I mean, when we talk about 
our, our, our own personal space, we're doing that with antivirus programs and maybe a router that's you know got PFSense or something on there that's running. Sure. In the corporate space, this is big dollars and big money. Ashton, you you were saying you know like if if your own personal privacy or whatever is compromised, it can cost you dollars as well as a lot of time in getting that back. I assume you guys are going to come at this from more of a corporate perspective as, right. as opposed to a personal perspective. Yeah, primarily we were considering this at an enterprise level, but a lot of the applications would still work in on a on a single node or on a hundred nodes. Um, and so, as you said, the, you have the intrusion detection and prevention systems, or IDPS. You can also have those separately uh, in terms of um, just IDS or IPS for those other two. Um, and essentially, just to explain the difference between those, like what, what it actually is, the difference between intrusion detection and intrusion prevention. Basically, intrusion detection will alert you that something is wrong or that there's malicious um, intent on the network, malicious traffic. And intrusion prevention will not only do that, but it can also take action to stop it. So maybe it'll, it'll say, hey, this isn't right, and shut down the critical infrastructure or prevent the traffic you're getting through. So it takes that one step further and can actually make actions based on that information. So that also goes back to what you were saying before with like whether this is just a personal issue or whether it's more of a, a broad uh, enterprise issue. Th that kind of goes back to the way that you can do this. You can you can take action on each individual computer and that or each device, um, and that's called the host-based method. And essentially, what that means is you're going to put a little piece of software or hardware on every single computer and every single device and have the traffic go through that before it reaches the computer or the device or whatever it may be and that is very effective in terms of small groups because you can not only see all the traffic but it can also be repurposed to see all the user behavior on the other side so the data that you get from that is really really exceptional because um, it's not just the traffic it's also the user behavior and together you can form pretty convincing stories. Like, for example, if um, you can see that the user has taken a picture of something on their computer that was sensitive data and then sent it somewhere else, well, it's changed formats. A, a normal um, data leak prevention software wouldn't necessarily detect that unless it was able to not only see that action happen and also see the data leaving the computer. Um, and that type of host-based detection is sort of the counterpart to the network-based detection, which is for a group of nodes, uh, you set up a central area where all of the incoming traffic, sort of like a gateway where all of the incoming traffic passes through first, and then it's distributed to these machines. And that has benefits as well in terms of being able to correlate communication between them, and also it doesn't consume any of the actual CPU power on the individual machines, it's all done externally. So there's advantages and disadvantages to both, but hopefully that gives like a high-level description of what's going on with where to put these IDS and IPS systems. Sure, and and uh, can you want to talk a little bit about too? You know, um, the data that's being collected. You know, some of it is packet capture, some of it is traffic-based, uh, but there's also a lot of efforts in the logging aspects. So you have an enterprise farm of you know X number Linux machines, X number of Windows machines, and all of those are constantly logging behaviors from very high-level applications all the way down to the specific kernel-level interactions that are saying you know this memory address is being modified here. Um, in your experience, have you seen any, well first, how much, what percentages of the total data that makes an IDS system are characteristic? And, uh, and, and when you kind of formulate that, does certain data sets help to better kind of formulate what the behavior of your organization is and establish that baseline that becomes the uh, methodology for detecting when something is anonymous in your network? Yeah, and I mean, the to answer your question about the percentages, it's not you, you don't need 100% of the data to make these calls as to whether it's malicious or not. Normally, what's done is just on the metadata. That's the the 
sort of like tags that identify what kind of information is being sent. And uh, I had a great experience this summer just learning about how packets are structured. Like with the nested um, way that they're formatted, you can have essentially different layers of granularity there. So maybe you're just interested in the communication between MAC addresses. MAC addresses. That would be on the, uh, the first physical layer. Or maybe you're concerned about the IP addresses, which would be in the, on the uh, IP layer. And then there's TCP and UDP. And as you go down, you get closer and closer, like, a, like you would on an, uh, a mail address. You go in sort of the opposite direction. But as you move up, you have you know, the country, and then the state, and the, uh, the city, and finally the, the street address. It's the same thing in that case. Sometimes you can start with just that information and that address and still have a convincing story behind what's going on on the network. So you might only need to collect you know, not even 3 or 4%, depending on what the content of the data is, to be able to identify these as malicious. And how much of it is really heuristic versus, I guess, getting it right the first time? So is it, is it something where you really, you know, those patterns have to be in the system? Even if you only have partially, a partial amount of the data, what is kind of the mechanism which kind of looks at that incoming traffic and says this is good or this is bad? So that really brings us into the discussion of statistical anomaly-based detection and signature-based detection. So the former um, statistical anomaly-based detection means that you start by, for a period of time, you sort of get to know the network. You train for a while, and it collects data to see what the, the normal, that's kind of a loaded word because of the statistical meaning, but let's say the regular traffic distribution is. Um, and based on that, you can then say, all right, here's what it normally looks like. Let's test it now. And then when you have data comes in that doesn't match that, you have this outlier way out on the side, you can then have a pretty convincing way of saying, well, this doesn't look right. There, there's something wrong here. So Actually, that's sort can, of, can you give me some specific examples when you say, like, what kind of data or you might see? Okay. Yeah. So let's say just total traffic uh, on the network. Maybe um, the payload size of the, the packets over a 10-minute time period um, is what I'm doing currently now for... for my uh, internship is setting up something that, that takes that from the packets as just sort of a proof of concept, takes the uh, individual packet size and sums those up over a time period, say 10 minutes, and then looks at the previous times as, and uses that as the baseline. And then it comes up with a distribution based on the previous times and compares it to that and gives you a probability that it would fall within that. So if the probability is very small, you, you can set a threshold, maybe if it's below a tenth of a percent or below one percent, whatever you would want it to be, um, you can be notified and action can be taken to, to prevent whatever malicious action is, is taking place. So is it only because the traffic, uh, it, there's an increase in traffic that you're looking for or an increase in a specific kind of traffic or, or what? So you can do it in many different combinations. The, it's not just, I mean, just because there's an increase in traffic that's an anomaly doesn't necessarily mean that there's an issue. You can narrow the focus and get to a point where it is somewhat more convincing. So if you're looking at total network traffic, it's really tough to say that there's a serious anomaly going on unless maybe you have a, a DDoS attack or something like that. But if you're looking at a specific IP address or a specific port on an IP address um, at a specific time, Let's say the normal workday on port 80 for a normal device, and that's what would normally be receiving web traffic. And if you're not hosting a, uh, a website, you shouldn't be getting tons and tons of traffic there. And suddenly, there's just a, a ton, more than you've ever seen before, more than you've had in the, this regular distribution that you've developed. That would probably be a good indicator that's something going on. Or you can make the same argument on FTP. Uh, the, the, the port for that, I believe, is... 21, I want to say, um, or, or whatever, if, if there's a specific thing that you identify as being a malicious action, then you can sort of baseline that and, and be notified when new data points come in that aren't within that regular distribution. 
And do you see this both on, do you do it both on the server side and on the host side or on the client side, let's just say, to, so to speak? Can you do it, you do it on both? Uh, you, you could do it on both, but the way that I'm doing it for my internship is on a separate gateway device. So it, when the traffic's coming into the network, uh, you, you pick up those traffics en route and, uh, and then evaluate them there. Okay, so it's, it's purely external facing. It can be. I mean, if you so desire, you could perhaps make something similar for log events. Sure. Um, let's say on a host, uh, on each individual host, maybe you look at authorization attempts and um, look for, for patterns in that that might indicate um, a, a brute force attack on a password for SSH, for example. And those are things that could be detected by anomaly detection. Maybe normally there's only five missed passwords during the whole day, and suddenly you have 150,000. Um, that that would be a good indicator that something's going wrong, and that could be at the host level. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess the one thing about intrusion detection that has always made me not skeptical, but um, uh, question its capabilities with some of the more sophisticated attacks, is that you know a lot of what we're talking about here is looking for the kind of kind of anonymous outlier, and I feel like a lot of times the more sophisticated attacks that we're starting to see. They, you know, they stay within the the boundaries so that they just look like another data point on that line. But in fact, um, you know, they're a fully malicious user. So, you know, I think I think IDS definitely takes care of like the bot who is, you know, has found your IP address and has begun wreaking havoc. Um, but I think it's clear, at least in in my uh, estimation, that there's not much of a serious um, deterrent IDS can have in kind of that slow, methodical hacker who is spending months at a time learning how your network uh, works and learning what the normalized behavior patterns are so that they can just blend in like another user. And I mean, at the end of the day, this is a cost-saving measure. Um, and it's also to a certain extent, a harm-reducing measure. That's not, there's no silver bullet that's going to give you 100% protection every time, and anomaly-based detection, I hate to break it to everyone, it's not the thing. Um, it is an incredible tool, and it's one that you should definitely use. But you don't have the ground truth to be able to say, this is definitely an anomaly based on the fact that it doesn't fit that pattern. Uh, you've just said it doesn't fit the existing data set. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's an anomaly. But it is something that you probably would want to know about and make a decision on. Now, the counterpart to the statistical anomalies that we're, we're talking about is the, the um, signature-based detection. And that it, there you do have a convincing way of saying, this is almost definitely malware or definitely not. Because the way that signature-based detection works, it, it looks at a hash or basically just a... Um, a way of condensing a packet into a, a common pattern and says, is this something that we've already identified as malware? And if it's yes, then it's labeled as that. Um, and in that case, you pretty much can say, if you've seen it before, you shouldn't see it on the network again. Um, and by using a bunch of other sources uh, of, of places that have seen this malware before, you can pretty convincingly block out that type of traffic. And that is not going to go away. I, I don't think that anomaly detection is the cure for signature-based detection. Um, it's not gonna, we're not going to see that go away because it's still a very accurate way of, of generating the labels that you need on this malicious traffic. So using them together, you can get a fuller idea of what's going to go on. And I think it's good to be skeptical of anomaly-based detection because in some ways, it's only as powerful as you're able to make it. It's a very personalized... Uh, sort of company-centric method of doing things because you have to train based on your particular data set to, to make it really effective. Sure. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that makes the signature-based detection a lot more um, powerful is when you start tying together what's been going on with intrusion detection with this new uh, kind of keyword in the last six months here called, uh, you know, threat intelligence, which is kind of this all-encompassing idea of that, you know, companies and the enterprise need to be looking at the whole picture 
of what threats are actually applicable to them and basically you know coming up with these questions and answering it for themselves and one of the biggest questions they struggle with is well we want to answer the question what are all the threats that are you know possible issues for our organization and oftentimes no one can really be sure that they've filled out that list completely with what all the threats are so one of the great things about threat intelligence the potential is that these companies and organizations uh, could be setting up almost like information exchanges where you're sharing what those common vulnerabilities are so that it's not just uh, necessarily you know master repositories or databases of known signatures but you know each each community is basically crowdsourcing and helping each other you know identify and catalog these threats with the idea that you know that whole surface area of attacks now you have data sets that represent a much larger surface area than just your organization uh, and this has been something that has gained a lot of popularity um, in in some circles and in others uh, not so much uh, and, and it's interesting to see which groups are really at the heart of that um, on the one side you have you know organizations like uh, Norse Corp which I think has gotten a lot of attention in the last few weeks or few months rather as being kind of one of the newest uh, trendiest companies in kind of cybersecurity in this threat intelligence space uh, at least Gartner claims that they are um, and Norse Corp is making this product called Darkwatch which claims to be the first threat intelligence appliance specifically for detecting and defending against quote sophisticated threats so um, you know it sounds like another intrusion detection system uh, but now we're starting to see some rebranding into threat intelligence and I think the idea is that you know we're aggregating collecting data from a variety of sources and people are crowdsourcing and sharing those data points and those experiences um, so that it benefits everyone and the government has actually also started to take a look at this and there's a, a rather controversial cybersecurity bill known as CISA um, which stands for the Cyber Information Sharing Act which uh, last month in July passed the uh, the inner chamber of the US Senate and is probably gonna go to a floor vote sometime in the fall and essentially it's what the government is proposing in this bill um, is exactly what I just said which is the sharing of information across not only uh, corporations in the enterprise but the government as well so now you have you know everyone is helping everyone with this threat intelligence notion um, and this this is not necessarily a new idea uh, from the government um, because there was a similar legislation last year in the house um, called CISPA which was pretty much it's pretty much the same counterpart in the house um, but it, it died rather quickly um, and the reason for that has been the you know the privacy issues associated with all this information sharing you know what are we really sharing here um, etc and I think again with you know some of the things that have happened in the in the public with with you know just all things cybersecurity being kind of more like this in front of people um, in the news um, and for those of you uh, listening to audio only when I mean this I'm putting my hand in front of my face and shaking it meaning it's like in front of my face um, and and you know I think that's got some people on edge uh, but you know it passed the inner senate chamber uh, the intelligence committee 12-12-3 so um, and, and you know it's not just the average guy who I think is concerned about this bill um, the group anonymous has pretty publicly made it stated that they do not like this at all and that you know they're gonna do everything that they can to try and uh, stop it um, but I think that the notion itself the core idea which is all agencies government enterprise private sector etc are basically trying to help each other out and do this crowdsourcing thing and I think doing that in an encrypted and a secure manner can really improve the quality of the data sets that make up these threat intelligence and intrusion uh, prevention systems yeah I think the the real takeaway from that is to you can do so much more when you pull the data together 
The reason that a lot of companies aren't doing that is when you have this pr proprietary data set and you can market that to your consumers, then there's certainly money there and there's certainly a product. The, the advantage to sharing that with everyone and sharing that with other companies that are doing the similar thing is that you're actually benefiting yourself still because you're still preventing the number of, of attackers that are able to get through on your network because you have this stronger data set that's not just you collecting things, it's everyone. Um, I think that's something that, that really should be a goal moving forward is a more open, at least with privacy restrictions, certainly. That's definitely a concern. But certain information, at least the metadata, would be immensely useful for preventing these types of attacks. Well, and that, that's always the, the case, right, of open versus profit. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, when profit kicks in there and people realize, well, wait a minute, if I hold on to my little bit of the data, you know, we, we deal with a lot of data at Gallup, and there's a lot of open data out there, and we, we've got a, a lot as well, but it's just that idea of if I can make some money off this, I need to, and I'm going to, and so that, that kind of prevents it, unless it's in their best interest to share that in some kind of open community where that gets... Ashton, when you say that, what, realistically, will that ever happen? I mean, will, will, will we ever come to a point where we're sharing this data to make the world better? I... I don't want to be a pessimist, but I don't see it happening anytime yeah. soon. I mean, in theory, it's, it's, it's a great concept. The, the bottom line is revenue generating is always going to look better than cost saving to an investor and in turn to the CEOs of these companies and the workers and everyone from there down. It's just the nature of the business of cybersecurity is that you're fighting this uphill battle and... Uh, inherently, you're going to have to make these decisions that sort of favor the defensive side versus the, um, you know, more glamorous revenue-generating side. Yeah, and let me ask this question. I mean, governments work at the lowest bidder, right? I mean, they're not able to move as quick as, as corporations do, and such, and it puts them at a serious disadvantage in in a lot of cases. How, how much, from what you guys see, does that? And I'm trying to think of, you know, to to base it in some kind of percentage basis, but I get, I'd be asking you to guess or make up a number. But how far is our governments behind typically what we see in, in the corporate world as far as being able to secure their environments? Wow, no takers on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, a tough one to say accurately, but I think it is certainly behind. I don't know to what degree, um, just due to the, the, like you said, the nature of the lowest bidder, the, their, um, the, the data tends to be more sensitive at that level too, so um, there's there's additional policy requirements and additional things that need to be done that uh, you can't necessarily use the cutting edge technology at that point because you have to meet these policy restrictions that haven't necessarily caught up yet. So yeah. I can't speak, I, I don't have a huge amount of uh, government experience or knowledge, uh, although I do work for a government contractor, I work sort of in-house, so um, yeah, I want to get you know, maybe perhaps Christian would be, be able to, to answer that better, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big issues is that there are so many different data sets that are at different levels of kind of classification and security that, well, how do you normalize that? And I think the answer, this is going to sound terrible, but here we go, I think the answer is that you have to have a platform as large and as wide-reaching as something like Google, except for cybersecurity. So you, you essentially have a centralized, secure platform that allows data to be submitted, but in order for the data to be submitted, it has to be in a very standardized format. So all the parties, no matter what the different classification is, when it gets submitted to that database, it has to be a normalized standard template and whatever metadata and keys get you know submitted has to be kind of the same parameterized values and it can't deviate and I think that helps level the playing field I guess my issue though is that how is that I mean what 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 I'm proposing is kind of a very I would say uh, traditional way of thinking about you know storing a bunch of signatures or a bunch of cyber data and making it accessible to the masses, right? I think I think a lot of people find fault with this notion of centralized models where we just, everything is centralized, guys, here it is, and it all comes out of this one masterful thing, and I don't really think that's 
powerful when you're going after crowdsourcing, which is, you know, everyone contributes a little bit here and there, and whether or not they're all contributing a little bit here and there to one central system, or whether it's kind of like a net all throughout the internet, I feel like that's the more effective model, almost like we were talking last week about, you know, things like SETI and, you know, just distributed computing in general. I feel like that has a real home base in this problem where, you know, the data that's being submitted and collected, the developers of whatever this platform is going to be, um, and, and it could be, you know, actually a combination of government, private sector, etc., so that all the different viewpoints and concerns are represented, but essentially a, a software framework is developed and agreed upon that, you know, allows a, a, you know, here's the package and deployed to, you know, whatever edge device, whatever company it is, you can either deploy it or you don't but you know exactly what it is that you're getting and exactly what data it is that's going to take from that network and it would have you know some standard conventions for how it's anonymized, how it's regulated, etc. And I think that's probably your best shot of crowdsourcing this threat intelligence notion which um, you know I think if you look at the Norse um, kind of uh, publicity uh, stunt that they did, which was this mapping tool called IP Viking, which takes, uh, you know, a fraction of the data on the Internet. I think it's less than 1%, but that's still a huge amount, and it shows the active, you know, threats and who's, you know, sending SSH bots to who and so forth. And that's um, a really powerful thing in the sense that you can start to visualize and understand just how much of this is going on but the tool itself doesn't really do much for you beyond saying, hey, look at this really cool dot that is glowing in China because it's, you know, getting radiated by SSH bots. I mean, that's, in, in the realistic corporate sense, no one really cares. Um, and, and it's amazing for me to watch, you know, I, I talked about this on Home Gadget Geeks. I may have mentioned it here, but, you know, uh, the big thing a couple months ago was, you know, the NASDAQ got hacked, and the interesting thing about that was that uh, the premise of the hack was not to destroy the NASDAQ, not to steal money. It was actually a group of Russians who wanted to basically learn how the NASDAQ is architected and replicate it. And I think that's fascinating that that was the type of attack or interest that was behind the motivating factor. But now we're hearing um, just this past week, August 26 or so, um, that JP Morgan got uh, hit pretty hard with a sophisticated attack where, you know, we're not talking about the traditional anomalous detection points on a IDS that was going to stop this kind of thing. There are several major uh, panels um, and, and institutes who have come out and said, whoa, this is like nowhere near what we see in terms of a normal malware attack. It's on the level of sophistication of like a Stuxnet. And I think the fact that we have set our measure of security in some ways to, well, the finance sector, right? Because they're the guys that, you know, their fingers are cut off and their jobs are gone if Wall Street does not run securely, right? So what do we do? Every year, we hire the best undergraduates from the top 20 computer science programs in the country, and they all go to New York, New York City, and they do cybersecurity. And you know, they they get they make a lot, a lot of money because the people running these big exchanges would rather pay big salaries to cyber specialists to have their systems secure than lose billions of dollars because malware or whatever, what have you. Um, but the fact that, you know, we are still, you know, and those are some of the smartest guys, arguably, for our age who are going and doing that on Wall Street. And to see the fact that we're still not having the level of impact that we should be in preventing that um, is pretty interesting. And the Fox Business did a write-up on this and... Um, you know, not only does J.P. Morgan itself have, you know, multiple tiered layer of threats and that, you know, they probably have every IDS custom built that you can imagine, um, but, you know, they don't even know yet. They still haven't been able to fully reverse engineer what the malware is to understand if it's still running on their systems, who it involves, 
what level of damage is done, and that is kind of the, quote, doomsday scary stuff where, again, not doomsday, not curing cancer, etc., but when you start talking about finance sector and, uh, well, can we place our trust in these online systems, you can have a massive economic depression or market crash if people lose value in the trust. And the fact that all of our systems, we've gone to basically the electronic version of trust, that really speaks volumes to the level of potential of danger there is in not having these systems trustable. Um, and so, of course, well, I think intrusion detection is cool, and I see, you know, a lot of room for growth in areas of, you know, like machine learning starting to kind of put some AI and some some reasoning behind just, you know, statistical-based approaches, even though a lot of what machine learning is is really advanced statistics. Um, I don't think any of that is really geared to be a solution to stop kind of some of this advanced level malware. And I think some of it is really a psychology problem. Um, and that's one of the things we, you know, have talked about in the ACES program, right, is that cybersecurity cannot be just a technical problem because if it was, we would have fixed it by now. And I, I think, you know, things like J.P. Morgan just, I hear that phrase always coming back to me is that cybersecurity is not just a technical problem. If we're a computer science major, a computer engineering major, we would love to think that, or professional or IT or et cetera. Um, but it's, it's really not. And I think one of the big problems we're having right now is that we don't understand motivations the way we should be, and we don't understand the groups of people and the entities and how how the allocation of time and the kind of the the business model of cybercrime. We don't understand it as well as we should from the hacker's point of view, um, and I think that's damaging us. And if anything, what you know, what what would make a next error intrusion detection system is something that detects changes in behavioral patterns of hackers, which, well, how are you going to do that? Beats the hell out of me, but what I'm saying here... Tra track the amount of pizza and Mountain Dew that's being purchased. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, how, how many zombies we have staying up 24-7 trying the same thing over and over again until it works. How many uh, of those anonymous masks? <laughs> yeah. 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 But, I mean, I, I think there's really something to be said for that, and... Um, you know, CISA is, I would say, the closest thing in the government to, uh, I guess, a new idea in cybersecurity. Um, I mean, we've had some executive action in cybersecurity in 2012. I think there was an executive order on cybersecurity defense um, from the Obama administration. But there's really, you know, in, in a general broad perspective, the government's behind on the legislation. Um, we're not necessarily behind on the offensive-defensive technologies, but we're behind on the kind of getting into the heads of some of these uh, criminal masterminds. Um, and it's just interesting to see if any of the intrusion detection systems will kind of, quote, come up to snuff in that space. Um, one of the things that I find interesting, uh, going back to show number four... Uh, with Mark Goldstein, uh, who you may remember uh, if you've listened to that show. He's now working at Insider Spider, and you can go to their site at uh, insiderspider.com. -E and they're looking at a very unique problem, which is the insider threat and how do you do kind of counterintelligence within your own organization. And I think... Well, while it's not exactly what we're talking about here, it highlights the point that whatever it is that Insider Spider is going to eventually be doing with this technology that they're ramping up with, um, the the problem of you know how do you really evaluate if someone inside your company is a threat to you when you've hired them, they've gone through your HR process, their background check came out clean, they've been in your organization for three years, and then they do something. Um, that's the kind of behavioral problem we have on a much larger scale with just you know intrusion detection in general. And uh, I think there's ways for us to, for example, um, anonymous, right? 
we actually we know a lot. I, I'm pretty sure the world knows a lot about you know what anonymous is, how it operates, what their motives are, and what it is that would make you a target in the eyes of anonymous. But what if we had that kind of intuition about all types of you know cyber infiltration, and where would that get us? Um, and and so I think these are all. These are all things I think about when I hear intrusion detection. And, you know, I, I did intrusion detection research for a semester. A lot of cool data, a lot of cool things you can do with the data sets, and arguably a lot of room for growth. Um, but, you know, what I don't see is that kind of forward thinking on the, I guess, the sophistication level. And I'm not really sure if there's anything in research right now that really addresses these high-level issues that are becoming kind of very customizable and it almost makes me wonder should we be spending more time on intrusion detection and prevention which some may say is proactive but some may argue is kind of reactive at that point or we should should we be focusing more of our research and time on kind of coming up with secure kernels secure models of computing all the way back to kind of the theory and principles of computing in a secure manner itself and I think some people would argue that's a flawed approach because you'll never have something that's truly secure. Um, but I think those are the types of questions that are important to be talking about in threat intelligence in general. Because I think, I think one of the big things we take away from threat intelligence is that the boardroom of companies are listening. And what that means is that you know, when it's the CIO's turn to talk in the board meeting, he's no longer getting shut up when he says, hey, there's an IT security issue, and the CEO's like, yeah, yeah, I don't care. I think now everyone starts to put, you know, perk up an ear and say, oh, like, you know, do tell us more, and, you know, we might need to throw some dollars your way to make sure this isn't a problem for us. Uh, that's pretty recent, and I think that's, that to me is all what, all of what threat intelligence means is, is, to me, is the boardroom is now listening, and these technologies are starting to pool themselves in a way where, kind of, the rebranding under threat intelligence and preventing these things proactively—that's what a boardroom wants to hear. Is how are we making this better for our company? How are we preventing it? Um, but again, that longer term, when you're looking at kind of this upper echelon of you know finance sector, um, energy sector. Uh, government, etc. You know, they are dealing with some pretty sophisticated stuff that I don't think we have an answer to yet. I think the the one thing that we have that sort of helps is you can't get inside the attacker's head, which is kind of what you're talking about. You can't necessarily know the the psychology that they have, but you can kind of pretend. And what I mean by that is you can try with penetration testing um, and things like that to at least get an idea of what the process would be like if you wanted to break in. And that's what, like you were saying, that's what's so intriguing and useful about threat intelligence is that we're moving away from, okay, now that they're in our territory, what act actions can we take to uh, you know, mitigate the, the total losses? When really everyone needs to start thinking about what are the threats to begin with and where are they and what are they going to look like when they get here? So moving back to chronologically and working through what the attacks look like is an incredibly useful step. And part of that um, is thinking about what are the attackers thinking. Um, and maybe the way you do that is have um, periodically say employees or attempt to attack this system or, or penetrate, pen, pen test this system. Um, and I think doing that sort of thing, at least you have an idea of what that looks like and you're not guessing when the time comes and you have no idea what it is. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it, too, is, you know, you bring up a good point. Intrusion detection gives you kind of a situational awareness to where uh, I, where the baseline is, yes, but I, I guess you can, in, if you yourself are analyzing and reading these data sets and understanding what the recurring issues are, it does help you take steps to maybe changing the way your network is configured um, and, and on some more kind of rudimentary levels. You know, for example, my intrusion detection system says, hey, I get a lot of unusual scans when I leave my FTP server at the default port 21. 
maybe I should make my system set up so that it only accepts a secure connection on port 990 using an SSL certificate and if the user doesn't present a, a uh, RSA key when they log in then they're just instantly rejected from the system and that could be an example that instantly optimizes 90% of the bots or kind of you know data that's coming in saying you know you're getting attacked you're getting attacked etc it it does help you kind of figure out over time you know here are the here are the obvious things and here's what I can change in my settings to get down to a kind of normal state of interaction and then when I do start to see something that's a little bit heightened activity even if it's not necessarily malicious at least I was able to internalize that you know hey a lot uh, some some more communication has been happening on the network uh, today, let's kind of understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And the 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 what a lot of people like to say is it's not a big data problem; it's a small data problem because you're trying to find this native or needle in the haystack, and if you're overwhelmed by the hay, you're never going to find it. So the the more that you can realize that there's this base rate, which is almost entirely benign traffic and only this tiny portion that is malicious, um, you realize how challenging it really is to, it, not just technically, but in any field to, to find that little little area and really make decisions based on that. Yeah. You know, you say that, Ash, and, uh, you know, I, I always think of it like a needle in a needle stack because you're, you're trying to find <laughs> something that looks, yeah. right, like, like everything else, and, and it oftentimes it flows through. Guys, let me ask you this question. You know, we we often when we talk about security come at it from a defensive perspective. You know, we're always we're trying to prevent or detect. Is there is there any thoughts in the community on offense? In other words, you know, if you are are we reaching out to to say to be one step ahead in this area of engineering, or do we need to think about a whole new platform for this, or those kinds of things? Uh, Christian, I'll start with you. Any thought to the offense? Yeah, well, I mean, so there. So, firstly, there are a lot of companies that focus particularly on the offensive, and you know, having those strategies. I think my take on it is, you know, we we do so much defensive that I think some of our cyber professionals could be better trained in the offensive, so that they do understand that kind of uh, it, it helps them with the defensive, but. It almost makes me wonder what would happen if companies started paying some of their cyber specialists to focus on, hey, go a go after attacking the biggest people who are a problem on our network. Would that deter them from doing more damage once you say, hey, surf's up, we know this is your thing, <laughs> or would it just start becoming, you know, back and forth? I Leads an escalation. Yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of hard for me to say. Um, but what I, you know, what I think is important about that offensive strategy is that there could be some counteractive things that your company could do that could actually have a substantial impact on the operations that are taking place and which are a threat to your company. I think the big example here is not so much the enterprise we're talking, but government agencies. So I don't think it's a secret that you know the United States and China are constantly attacking each other back and forth, and that you know, a good number of them are paid government officials doing it. And um, it's clear that we haven't survived just doing defensive because we pay a lot of people to do the offensive. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think kind of highlighting some of what works for the government in that arena, you know, how dangerous is it to start getting private companies going after like that? That's dicey territory because, again, our laws are behind the times and the way they're written right now companies could be held really really liable if they you know did offensive cybersecurity in a matter that was considered unethical that's a huge liability for an organization and to try and say what what that gray line is and what that fine you know point of no return is um, I don't think anyone's gonna give you a, a black and white answer to that so do companies really want to take the risk? No. Can government afford to take the risk? Yes, but I don't. I don't think the average Fortune 500 or Inc. 5000 company is willing to even think about that right now. Yeah, and that is definitely a concern ethically. Um, 
which brings us back to the human problem. I, I always liked the the XKCD comic where the they're trying to get the password and he says, "Oh, we'll never get Chuck's. It's in 256-bit encrypted with this key we've never seen before. We'll just have to give up." And then in the next panel, it's like, "What would actually happen?" And it's just the attacker with a wrench, and he's like, "Here, go beat this guy up and get him to tell us the password." Like that's that's actually what would happen. Um, so. But to get back to the original question that Jim posed um, in terms of offensive cybersecurity practices, which almost sounds ironic when you're saying security, how can that be um, a, an offensive endeavor? Well, to a certain extent it already is with things like um, Stuxnet, and I, I really think that it's going to be a big thing in terms of military. Uh, we've already seen countries taking, going on the offensive against others and I don't think that's going to stop, and that's almost a necessity now to, to in this ascending arms race of, of offensive cybersecurity in those terms. Um, in addition, like Christian said, it's a great resource to have, you know, hackers for hire or even internal hackers that can demonstrate how strong your systems are with pen testing, um, but you do have that ethical risk that if you're teaching them how to do this, then they can do it, and it's a serious issue that you have to weigh the, the benefits and detriments of. So um, I, I think offensive cybersecurity is going to be only getting bigger and bigger in the future, um, and it's, it's not something that's necessarily new. Yeah, it, it seems a lot more, uh, I guess, at this point, more in the political sphere of society than it is in, like, the corporate enterprise. Um, and I guess the question I always ask myself is it's like, you know, two, two kids are in the playground and, and, it, and you know, the, the one kid's waiting for the other one to punch him first so that he can say, he started it, right? <laughs> but they're both still going to get sent to the principal's office for fighting, right? So it's like, well, and, and that's one of the big ethics questions that we ask when uh, the ACES students do uh, honeypots every year is... Uh, Yes, you're inviting this hacker into your honeypot to study and understand what they're doing, and yes, it's illegal for them to be coming into the system. Um, but by you entrapping them, does that give you a you know a blank check to say, okay, now I have the information on this intruder, I'm going to go turn around and start doing the same thing? Um, and you know these are just the gray areas that no one's going to give you an absolute you know yes, this is this is right or no, this is wrong. Uh, but there are legal, yeah. ethical, financial consequences associated. The, the weird thing about the honeypots, too, um, not to get too much on a tangent, but when you do when, when you do these research experiments where you give attackers an opportunity to get on these systems, that's essentially giving them uh, a blank, you know, their own little area to launch more attacks from. Um, and while you're getting the information, the product that you're giving them is this this new IP address from which to launch attacks. So there's there's also that ethical component in terms of research where in order to get it, you have to take this risk. Yeah, for sure. Do we, um, guys, are we getting to the point where, you know, oftentimes I think, you know, a little, I think a little Darwinian at this point to think that the strong survive and get stronger, or the weak die, and we stop, you know, we stop following those practices. Is there a Bit of that in cybersecurity today, where the where you know the strongest that do the best, we mimic those, and those that won't go away. Yeah. Well, I mean, go go ahead, Christian. I mean, I think there's some of that. I think the <laughs> the scary thing about that is once everyone starts copying each other, we're just looking for what to change so that we can go ahead and do it all over, right? So, you know, I, I don't think necessarily we've, uh, you know, long term. I think. I think there are some evolutionary, like for example, for maybe, okay, I'll be generous, five to seven years ago, one of the great security issues that probably plagued a good number of companies, reputable and unreputable, was the, uh, you know, SQL injections. And I think that really just got, affected a lot of people where, you know, we weren't doing proper form sanitization and there are some very, Kind of advanced cases of it that can show up, and if you're not, you know, if you're not properly doing best coding practices consistently, it becomes a big problem. I think 
because the awareness is so high on, you know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and we've kind of come up with what the safeguards and standard operating procedure is for um, making sure these things don't happen, those type of attacks have minimized. So it's like, it's just like uh, the Center for Disease Control, right? There are certain diseases that were terrible at the time of their, you know, impact, but over time are you know, minimized, reduced, and eliminated, but then there's always the next thing kind of coming, and I feel like that's kind of where we are right now in the in the cyberspace. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the The real issue, and I think the reason why it is so evolutionary, is one attack, if you discover it on one host, you can usually try it on almost all the other ones, in a relatively short period of time. I mean, we've, we've heard all the stories about being able to scan all the IP addresses on the Internet in 45 minutes or whatever it may be, and being able to take the same attack from one place to another is a great asset for attackers, and the reason why, um, if you don't defend against an attack that was discovered somewhere else, then you too will be affected by it. So I think that's one of the reasons why definitely there is a Darwinian approach here where you have to be above the... Uh, the attacks that are constantly improving at all times. So it's, it's this back and forth that ultimately produces better security and then in turn better attackers or just different attacks. So it's sort of this never-ending battle that, that does generate increasingly um, efficient and malicious attacks and increasingly beneficial and useful security practices. Yeah, kind of stronger strains of the disease, right? That, yes, uh, yeah. That get through the... The, the light stuff. Although at the same time, Christian, I just heard you say diversification, right, is is good in this space when we have, you know, 1.5 or whatever it is, billion PCs all running the same operating system because it became the dominant OS across the world and cre created an amazing attack surface for everyone to take, you know, kind of take over. Yeah. That that diverse or that that uh, the lack of diversification with Microsoft software kind of led us into some problems, right? So we still need to kind of stay diversified as well? Is that what you're saying? Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's big. I think mobile has changed that a lot because I think you start to see a lot of discussion about how, you know, no one was installing antivirus software on Android when it first came out. You know, you got an Android cell phone and that was the end of it, right? But, you know, now there are apps for antivirus on your phone. So that just kind of shows that the threats migrate to the platforms that gain popularity. Um, so if you can kind of disperse that out, so and again, this is never going to happen just because of the way things are, you know, uh, designed in nature at this point. But you know, if you had a hundred different operating system platforms and each percentage of you know computing electronic users, there was a one percent usage of each of those platforms, then you would have a very diversified portfolio where they would the you know, wouldn't be these, you know, one type malware issues affect a bunch of people, right? Um, but I think, again, some of those more sophisticated cyber attacks, like in the case of JP Morgan, they're already looking at, you know, very customized solutions that are, you know, they're, they're running their own stuff and integrating it with enterprise and stuff we know, but, you know, they're targeting and honing into that very specific client with a very specific intention in mind. Um, and diversification doesn't really help you against that, with, with the exception of diversifying the actual technology that you're using within a, within a single entity. And that's really what becomes scary is there, it's, it's relatively, well, it's considerably easier to protect against the attack that's going out to 50 million IP addresses, let's say, than the one that is directed at you because the, the sophistication increases dramatically. Um, I think what you're saying is definitely correct about um, diversification, but you know if they're targeting you, then you have to have a you-specific solution. Um, it can't be an out-of-the-box thing that you necessarily buy from an antivirus provider like Symantec or Norton. Um, it needs to be something that's personalized. And that's part of the reason why anomaly detection has become more popular because it uses data that's targeted at you but I think, in addition, there needs to be almost application-specific um, security. And, and you see that most often with uh, web servers, because you can look then at the layer of packets that's concerned with data just for that application, look at the actual contents of the, 
the, the requests that are being made and the files that are being served. And that's where you really get into a security measure that can work for you and also work in different places um, but still maintain that individual aspect. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's well, it's an interesting landscape because it's constantly changing and adapting, and mold, you know, and there's threats from the outside and threats from the inside, and and I don't think there's one. I, I guess I learned this from Christian a, a, a while back. You know, you're never going to get them all, but you can reduce your attack surface some. But you better have a variety. You know, the 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 best defense is probably a variety of defenses as well. You can't. You know, I think we started the broadcast here by saying you know, looking for the silver bullet. There probably isn't one method that's the silver bullet that's going to guarantee it, right? You probably have to have multiple defenses all in place, making sure you're watching everything, including your insiders, right? I mean, because that's the human yeah. factor on the inside. is prob We're probably the worst for cybersecurity. I mean, all the systems are probably way more robust than the human. For sure. Yeah, and the... And the the nature of the problem is kind of changing because... Um, it used to be like, like we said before, it used to be thought that it's like a technical issue. It can be solved. It can never really be solved because there's just too many vulnerabilities. Um, what you can do is use your resources as efficiently as possible, and and then you have at least a strategy that covers the 95% of the area where you're vulnerable, um, and and does that efficiently. Because at the end of the day, even if there was a perfect solution if it was incredibly expensive, it wouldn't be practical to implement. Or it, there's a lot of cases where even if you had the perfect solution, it couldn't be used. So I think that's, again, going back to threat intelligence, that that's what makes it really exciting because you can look at, okay, what are my critical systems? What are my threats? Let's get the low-hanging fruit first and use these resources as, as efficiently as possible so that we can make the most of what we know now. Um, and it's still not going to be perfect, but it's the best that we can do. So it's really all about maximizing and not so much about trying to find this perfect solution. Yeah. No, I think well said on, from that standpoint because it's, it's, you know, it's, an, it's an escalating arms race in a lot of ways. We've just taken the battlefield from, I mean, I was in the military in the 80s and we, we fought with, you know, boots on the ground and tanks and, you know, missiles. We still do that a little bit, although most of war has gone to, to uh, drones, it seems, at this point. But, now uh, the, the, the methods of war have gotten more and more sophisticated, all just examples electronically in a lot of ways, who can damage the, the, the most using electronic means. And that's just a constantly escalating, changing, you know, I think about the, the military gear I had 20 years ago versus what they have right now. It's not the same because it's a different battle, right? It's a different war. We had to outfit our vehicles completely differently. I think in the area of cybersecurity, you guys are always going to have to be coming up with different you know, different options for uh, for locking things down. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Well, gentlemen, uh, we are coming up on the hour. Anything else uh, you want to throw in here as we uh, as we think about wrapping up this discussion? Sure. Uh, quickly, we are starting to build the hardware software for the oh, yes. Frontier Lab experiments. So I'll be talking probably next week. I'll push it to next week talking about the infrastructure for doing that in a virtualized manner on uh, Hyper-V and what we're gonna what some of the goals are we're gonna be doing with that to tie in the cybersecurity and the big data analysis on one package so um, now that we've gotten a pretty good range of topics discussed in these uh, first few episodes here we'll hopefully start taking some deep dives into these projects and really looking at some of the actual technology from a technical perspective and hopefully that will be illuminating on some of these broader topics that we have co been covering and uh, the first project should uh, be pretty interesting. We're going to be basically replicating something that's been done fairly often uh, which is scanning the entire world's IPv4 address space um, but we're going to bring some unique big data uh, technologies to do this and we're going to try and do some interesting analysis uh, to follow so that's that's the direction we're headed in going forward. Yeah, and uh, it's going to be really exciting. I'm excited to, to get working on that. Um, we're just getting all the pieces put together to, to have this sort of standalone experimental box from which to work on. Um, but once we get that going, 
expect some exciting articles, not only, well, not only podcasts here, but also hopefully some articles on Cyber Frontier Labs. Um, and should be in the in the cards for the future. So stay tuned. Very cool. Well, we'll look forward to that uh, all coming out as well. All the links to everything. If you're listening to this, maybe you're in the car or you're uh, watching on YouTube, head over to the show notes. They're all over at theaverageguy.tv, and you'll see a Cyber Frontiers uh, tab. Just click on that, and all the shows will pop up, and the show notes for this show will be there as well, some good ones indeed. And so we'll want to head over. And uh, Cyber Frontier Labs uh, sounds like I think that's going to be something we're going to get uh, deep into this year as we work with you guys. Just kind of a great platform for you guys to get information out and for people to work with it and to kind of see what's going on. So I'm pretty excited about that uh, as well uh, going on. I think next uh, to the next time we do this, September 15th, that Monday, does that look um, does that yep. look good for you guys? I think so? Sounds good. Good. Well, I'm excited about getting on. There's nobody more excited than getting on schedule than this guy right here. And so I, uh, I enjoy a good schedule. And so Monday the 15th, I think, I think that'll work for me. I'll double check. But that's what we're shooting for um, as well. We'll be back again. We'll do these live, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern. Those are Monday nights uh, here. Works great for those in Australia. If you're in the U.K., sorry about that. I know it's middle of the night uh, for you guys. But uh, we'd love to have you come out, join us each time. Uh, the other th new thing I'm doing with these is I'm getting the invite out very, very early and uh, so that you can get that on your calendar. So up to a week in advance, I'll send it, although I might do tonight's uh, two weeks, now that I know we're two weeks out. Uh, and so you can, uh, if you want to get on that list, just circle me in Google+. Plus. That's probably the best way to do it uh, and let me know. Otherwise, come over to, head to theaverageguy.tv, look in the right-hand column, and I have a new calendar there. Uh, as well that has um, all the dates of everything that's coming up for the schedule. So you can click on it there and join it right from there. That's a great way to do it. We have all the links now over at theaverageguy.tv slash subscribe. And so if you want to get this video large, video small, uh, audio MP3, or watch it on YouTube and stream it, we have a, it's available on Spreaker as well. Lots of different ways for you to do this and never miss a program. All right, we'll be back on September 15th, we'll hope, and uh, for the next show, if you're listening to this, Maybe in 2015, just fast forward to the next show and you're ready to binge listen to Cyber Frontiers. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good night.